Howdy, I'm Ben Crockett, and this is 451 Now. Today's guest is uh, Bradley Thompson. He's a professor of political science at Clemson University, where he teaches political philosophy. He's also the executive director of the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism. He's the author of today's book, The American Revolutionary Mind, and many, many, many other academic accomplishments. So my, my first sort of broad question for you, Professor Thompson, is in American Revolutionary Mind, you, you begin the book by saying this, John Adams thought a good deal about the origin and the meaning of the American Revolution. In a fascinating letter written to Thomas Jefferson in 1815, he asked a simple question. What do we mean by the revolution? End quote. Professor Thompson, what do we mean by the American Revolution? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. And in many ways, it's the question that really launched uh, th this book. My original plan was just simply to write a book on the Declaration of Independence. Um, but when I read that Adams quotation, uh, I, I was motivated to think that, that there, there really is a larger story here. And I was also motivated to, to realize that we don't really know very much about the American Revolution, despite the fact that it's probably the most written about subject in all of American histories. And there are social, political, constitutional, religious, diplomatic histories of the American Revolution. But the, the one kind of history that there's never been is a moral history of the American Revolution. And that's what I try to do in America's revolutionary mind. And I was inspired to do that by the Adams quotation, which if you if you continue uh, reading in that letter that he wrote to John Adams, he said that that the real American revolution was not the war for independence. The real uh, American revolution, he said, took place in the 15 years before a shot was ever fired at Lexington or Concord, which means Adams thought the real American Revolution took place between 1760 and 1775. And then he continues on to say that this true American Revolution was in the minds of the American people. And, and, and what he meant by that was that there had been a moral revolution in the minds of the people. So my book, America's Revolutionary Mind, attempts to explain that revolution in the minds of the American people that took place between 1760 and 1775. And it was, it was a revolution which uh, plumbed the depths uh, of not just constitutional theory, political theory, but moral theory. And this is this this kind of history, what I call a moral history of the American Revolution, I would say is is probably the most most important contribution uh, of my book to to the scholarly literature on on the revolution. And and I think it really goes the furthest in explaining how and why ordinary everyday Americans dedicated their lives, their fortunes and ultimately their sacred honor for the cause of American independence. A tale of two, um, a tale of two enlightenments. You know, speaking of that moral um, history, there were two sort of intellectual movements that, that led to two very different revolutions, the English Enlightenment and 
its sort of moral ideas and intellectual ideas leading to the American Revolution and the Continental Enlightenment and its ideas leading to things such as the French Revolution. So what's the difference between those two sort of enlightenments and why do they lead to such vastly different revolutions? Yeah, super question. I think the easy, it's a huge topic um, and one could write several major volumes uh, trying to answer the question, but I think the easiest way to sum it up would be uh, through two political philosophers, John Locke, who, who was the primary political philosopher uh, of the English Enlightenment, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, the 18th century French philosopher, who I think was the principal philosopher of the American Revolution. So if you read Locke and you read Rousseau, you can see how their ideas go almost immediately and directly to, on the one hand, the American Revolution, and on the other, the French Revolution. And more specifically, I mean, what is the fundamental distinction between Locke and Rousseau and the American and the French revolutions? And I think it can be summed up in this way. The American revolutionaries learned from Locke that the individual is the primary unit of moral and political value, that individuals are self-owning and self-governing, and therefore they have rights, natural rights, individual rights, and that the purpose of government is to protect, the sole purpose of government is to protect the rights of individuals. On the other hand, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, in, uh, uh, in his great uh, treatise of political philosophy, The Social Contract, Rousseau holds up as the primary unit of moral and political value, not the individual, but rather what he calls the general will, which is the will, and the general will is greater than the sum of all of the individuals living in a given political community. The problem, however, of course, is that the gen this concept of the general will is open-ended it's, it's undefinable. And so therefore, whoever gains political power can, can uh, uh, implement any form of politics they want in the name of the general will. And of course, what that ultimately led to in France was, was the guillotine, whereas the concept of individual rights uh, in America led to freedom. So American Revolutionary Mind, quoting Alexander Hamilton, the sacred rights of mankind are not to be rummaged for among old parchments or musty records. They are written with a sunbeam in the whole volume of human nature by the hand of the divinity itself. Continuing now in American Revolutionary Mind, most revolutionaries assume that God was the ultimate source of man's rights, just as he was the source of nature's law. I want to compare that quotation from your book with a article by the Huffington Post contributor, Jeff Schweitzer. Quote, let us be perfectly clear. We are not now, nor have we ever been a Christian nation. Our founding fathers explicitly and clearly excluded any reference to God or the almighty or any euphemism for a higher power in the constitution. Not one time is the word God mentioned in our founding document, not one, end quote. So if God was the ultimate source, and not necessarily the Christian God, um, but if God was the ultimate source 
in the revolutionary mind of nature's laws and man's rights. Why then in our constitution, the document which was meant to protect our rights in so many ways, why then does that document contain no mention of God? Is the Huffington Post writer correct? Well, the Huffington Post writer is correct in the literal sense that that God or uh, the supreme being um, or the creator is not mentioned in the Constitution. However, uh, the Declaration of Independence, which is the moral foundation for the Constitution, does in at least three places in the Declaration refer to uh, nature's God, it refers to the creator, and it refers uh, to the supreme being. Um, and so, I mean, the, the the author, I suspect, has a kind of political agenda, uh, and, and, and it's an ahistorical one. I mean, the fact of the matter is, 99%, I'm, I'm just making that number up, or I'm not making it up, but it's an approximation. I mean, uh, you know, somewhere between 98, 99% of all American uh, Americans in the 18th century were, of course, Christians. Uh, and that Christianity did provide uh, for most American revolutionaries the moral foundation of their worldview. It's written into the Declaration of Independence, um, but it's not necessarily the case that it had to be written into the Constitution. What does, what does the Constitution do? The Constitution is a written document that establishes, defines, and limits the powers of government. It, it has no other purpose, uh, and but it is, though, I believe, connected, and it was certainly connected in the minds of the framers of the Constitution to the moral principles contained in the Declaration of Independence. And the, the four major principles, moral principles contained in the Declaration of Independence, um, which begin with the second sentence of the de Declaration, we hold these truths to be self-evident, Right. And then it lays out four self-evident truths. And those four self-evident truths each can be summed up in one word each. Equality, rights, consent, revolution. And 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 virtually every single framer of the Constitution, including those who oppose uh, ratifying the Constitution, the so-called anti-federalists, they all agreed. I mean, virtually every single founding father to a person agreed that the that the principles of the Declaration, the moral principles, provided the moral foundation for the Constitution. So the author of the Huffington Post is half right and half wrong. It's not mentioned in the Constitution, but it didn't need to be mentioned in the Constitution. I want to talk a little bit about the first self-evidentiary truth um, the first self-evident truth that you mentioned from the Declaration of Independence, and that is all men are created equal. Uh, if I did on my college essays what the framers of various state constitutions from the you know late 1770s did with the phrase, you know, all men are created equal, I'd be kicked out for plagiarism. But uh, how did the revolutionaries know <clears throat> what nature's law was, in particular the claim that all men are created equally. I mean, I'm not equally athletic with LeBron James, for example. No, you're not. And, I, I, and I'm not as fast as Usain Bolt. 
Um, so I think the way to approach this question um, from the perspective of the founding fathers is to first recognize that uh, that they that they used a method. You spoke you in, at the beginning of your question. You asked about the laws of nature. Um, well, the question is, how did American revolutionaries? How did they know what the law of nature was? And, and by the law of nature, they meant the moral law of nature. Or how did they know about man's unalienable rights? How did they come to these very complex philosophic philosophic subjects? And the answer is they used the methods of the of the natural sciences. So they, in, in addition to being students of John Locke, they were also students of the 17th century English Enlightenment, more particularly of the 17th century revolution in modern natural science. Uh, and that meant primarily they were students of Bacon's, Sir Francis Bacon's Novum Organum and uh, Sir Isaac Newton's uh, Principia Mathematica. And in those two treatises, uh, Bacon and Newton said that man has to use his mind, his reason, to look out into the world to observe nature and human nature. And by observing human nature, we can induce certain, uh, certain conclusions about what man is. And so it, it's it's a it's an empirical observational method of analysis by observing human nature. And what did they learn about human nature? They learned that human nature is fixed. Uh, that that he, that man has a certain identity, a certain nature, and and man's identity in nature can be compared and contrasted with all other animate beings in the world. So. To answer directly the question about equality, um, here's, I think, how the Founding Fathers understood the issue. They understood that men, that there is a concept man, which includes women. There is a, a, a generic concept man, and man has certain distinguishing qualities and characteristics, namely reason and free will, which are distinct from all other animate beings. So the first thing to say is men are not dogs or horses because they have reason and free will. All human beings share those two common characteristics, which distinguishes them from all other beings. However, so there's a sense in which that's how men are equal. There's what... Um, they sometimes refer to as species equality. The species man is different from all other species because we share these common uh, distinguishing characteristics. However, the founding fathers also understood and recognized that there are, despite the, the fundamental equality of human beings relative to all other beings, they recognize that there are that there can be radical differences, radical inequalities between individuals, measurable differences in intelligence, in speed, in strength. Right? I mean, if you just if you just observe human beings, right? When you just look out into the world of human beings, you see difference. You don't see sameness. You see differences, and those differences are measurable. So there are quantitative differences between individuals, speed, strength, intelligence that can be measured. But there is a qualitative sameness 
amongst human beings in that they have reason and free will, which means that all individuals have an equal right to govern themselves. All individual all individuals have a equal right to govern themselves. That lends itself so beautifully to my next question on slavery, which uh, has to be discussed. In a quotation from the American Revolutionary Mind, you write, many American revolutionaries such as Otis, Rush, and Wells were unalterably opposed to slavery and understood the hypocrisy of owning slaves while accusing their British opponents of attempting to enslave them. I want to contrast that quotation with a quote from Nicole Hannah-Jones writing in an essay for the 1619 Project. Quote, conveniently left out of our founding mythology is the fact that one of the primary reasons some of the colonists decided to go- some of the colonists decided to declare their independence from Britain was because they wanted to protect the institution of slavery, end quote. Fundamentally, was the American Revolution the story of men wanting to be free and of natural rights or to protect, as Nicole Hannah-Jones insinuates, the institution of slavery? Nicole Hannah-Jones has completely misunderstood and perverted uh, the ideas and the actions of American revolutionaries. So this is a this is a large, complicated, and difficult subject uh, to which I devote an entire chapter in America's revolutionary mind. And it, it, look, it's it's cheap and easy for us in the 21st century to look back on, on the 18th century and, and judge and, and condemn them for all their, their vices. Um, but that's not what historians and scholars do. Our job, our responsibility is to try to recreate the universe in which they lived and to, and to understand the options that were, the, what the options that were uh, available to individuals at any given time in history. And so here's what we know with absolute certainty. All of America's founding fathers during the period of the revolution considered slavery to be a necessary evil. The f- but the emphasis has to be put on the word evil. Right. All of the founding fathers, including those who owned slaves, let's take Thomas Jefferson or Patrick Henry, for instance, who um, who are the most famous probably of America's revolutionary slave owners. And they're the most famous because on the one hand, Jefferson is the author of the Declaration of Independence. And Patrick Henry is is the author of the person who said, give me liberty or give me death. And the question is, how could they be slave owners? Well, the fact of the matter is uh, they lived in a society. They were born into a society, raised in a society uh, of, of slave owners. And, um, and, and, but because, the, because they were uh, members of, of, a, of the revolutionary enlightenment, they understood that slavery was wrong, that it was immoral, that it was evil, and they said so. They said so repeatedly. And I, I lay this out in my book. I mean, if you read the correspondence, for instance, of Patrick Henry, he was compl- he was totally tortured 
by the hypocrisy of his own life, by the hypocrisy of his own actions. And the same is absolutely true of Jefferson. And Jefferson openly condemns slavery multiple times as, as, as a sin. But here's the challenge. They didn't know how to get rid of slavery. And this goes to what I call the post-emancipation problem. So they condemned slavery, but they, 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 they simply didn't know how to end it. And once you try to understand how complex it would have been to sort of wave your magic wand and just one day say, Shazam, all slaves shall be freed, right? Then you have to answer the next question, which is the, well, now what question? Once you've, li once you've liberated um, a million slaves, I mean, what does that, what, I mean, what does that even mean? What happens, what happens to, the, to this pe people who have spent their entire lives in bondage and who have not been educated in any way, shape, or form? What do you say? Uh, see you later. Good luck. Uh, that's, the, you know, and Jefferson and, and really the, almost all Southern uh, slave owners were, were deeply perplexed and just didn't know how to think their way out of the post-emancipation problem. They couldn't come up with, um, they couldn't figure out a way to free their slaves, which they wanted to do, but without creating, in the worst case scenario, uh, a race civil war. And Jefferson recognized that, that, that if you were to free the slaves, that the slaves have a moral right to kill their masters. He understood this. Um, but of course, he didn't want, he didn't want to be, he didn't want to die either. You know, he had a right to self-preservation. So it, the bottom line, the, the bottom line is that it was a, it was a problem that they didn't know how to solve. Now, the last thing I'll say, and this is, but this is the most important thing to say. And that is the single most important moment in, in the history of abolition was the publication of the Declaration of Independence because it, it provided the moral argument. It provided the moral standard by which all Americans now had to judge the question of slavery. It's not until you. It's not until the publication of the Declaration of Independence, authored by Thomas Jefferson, that you get the first real anti-slavery movement in the United States. There would have been no anti-slavery movement, certainly no abolitionist movement, without the 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 philosophy, the natural rights philosophy contained in the Declaration of Independence. And the fact of the matter is, immediately after the publication of the Declaration, um, every state in the North began the process of gradually emancipating its slaves. And so by 1803, slavery was outlawed um, in all Northern states. And then uh, uh, the, the, the Continental Congress passed the Northwest Ordinance which forbade the extension of slavery into, um, into the Western territories. And, uh, and then the Constitutional Convention, which drafted the Constitution, uh, forbade uh, uh, the, the international slave trade after 1808. 
So the fact of the matter is, the Enlightenment philosophy contained in the, in the, the Revolution and the Declaration of Independence was the primary motivating force for the creation of an abolitionist movement in the United States. You started to, to say the end of one of uh, my favorite quotes from the time period by Patrick Henry, is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God, I know what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Patrick Henry, I was wondering if you have any favorite quotations um, from the American Revolutionary War period that you'd like to share. Uh, well, the, the one from Patrick Henry would, would be one of them. Um, and of course, the entire Declaration of Independence uh, would be that statement. Um, but there, uh, you know, there, there are wonderful statements um, throughout the, the entire revolutionary period, which, by the way, I consider the revolutionary period to extend from 1760 to approximately 1790. Um, and, you know, in addition to the Declaration of Independence and, you know, the, the phrase, we, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which I suppose would be my favorite. Uh, I would say my next favorite is contained in Federalist Essay Number 1, authored by Alexander Hamilton. And... Uh, there, Hamilton said that it has been reserved, and I'm paraphrasing, to the people of this country to determine the important question, whether it's possible for a society of people to frame new constitutions on the basis of reflection and choice or on the basis of accident and force. And I think that's a really interesting and important um, uh, claim by, by Hamilton, because what he's really saying here is that the American founding was based on reflection and choice. And reflection and choice means philosophy. The United States, it means reflection means reason and judgment and reason and judgment based on a certain philosophy. So, and, and, and Hamilton's sentiment here was echoed um, by most American revolutionaries. They understood how important, critically important for the history of the world was this unique founding moment when the American people had the opportunity, unlike any other people in world history, to create a, a new government and a new nation not on the basis of accident and force, as every other country in the history of the world had ever been created, but rather on the basis of reflection and choice, which means on the basis of philosophy. And of course, there is a specific philosophy underlying the American, uh, the American founding period, which is summed up in the principles of the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration the second, the second sentence of the Declaration, the we hold these truths to be self-evident sentence, that one sentence which lays out four self-evident truths, that is a praise. That one sentence is a praise of the entire Enlightenment philosophy and more particularly the philosophy 
of John Locke. And that is that is the moral foundation of the United States of America. So other than the book, The American Revolutionary Mind, if someone wanted to educate themselves in this this time period, 1760 to about 1790, what books would you recommend that they read? Sure. So I, I would say two of the most important books uh, that all students of the American Revolution must read um, would be Bernard Balin's uh, great book from the night from the mid 1960s. The title is "The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution," and the second book um, was by Balin's student Gordon S. Wood, uh, who was my professor. Uh, at Brown University, and and his most important book is titled "The Creation of the American Republic," which was published in 1969. So I would say those are probably the two most important books, along with America's Revolutionary Mind. To close out our podcast, Professor C. Bradley Thompson, would you read a a section of your book, "The American Revolutionary Mind"? I'd be delighted to do so, Ben. So this is. Uh, this is from the epilogue of the book, uh, the title of which is, Has America Lost Its American Mind? And these are the last two paragraphs of the epilogue and of the book as a whole. Quote, in 1860, the New England abolitionist Lydia Maria Child declared in a pamphlet that the time had come for the American people to, quote, decide whether our fathers were mistaken in considering freedom a blessing, whether our Declaration of Independence embodies eternal principles, or is a mere rhetorical flourish. She noted that slavery and freedom stood facing each other as, an, as antagonistic elements, and that, quote, one must inevitably destroy the other. Like Abraham Lincoln, child knew that a house divided against itself cannot stand. She ended her pamphlet with one last question to the American people. Which do you choose? And so it is with us. We too have a choice. We can accept the Declaration's freedom principles as true, or we can adopt very different moral principles. I hope this book will inspire its readers to think anew about this fundamental choice. Professor Thompson, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure. Ben, thank you so much.